Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to episode 114 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I have a good news for you guys. If you're enjoying this show, we're going to do two episodes per month starting this week. Uh, one of the second episode will be around uh, mental health diagnosis and sexual challenges. What happens at times, I get clients in my office that are coming in from uh, with some kind of a complaint and concern about their sexuality. And when we start kind of like working together, when we're talking more about it, it is a byproduct of their uh, mental health challenge. For example, it's byproduct of their OCD, depression, anxiety. And we, when we are addressing the mental health component of things, their sexual challenges disappear. I mean, it's not always the case, but I thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, what are some of the mental illnesses, what are some of the uh, common symptoms, even if you're curious to see what what are symptoms of PTSD, what are the symptoms of uh, uh, bipolar disorder. We're going to talk about those things. Each episode will focus on one mental health uh, challenge. Uh, this week is going to be de- depression and sexuality. Uh, I leave a link in the uh, show notes uh, so you can uh, find where you can go where to find it. Uh, the only thing is I will uh, gather email addresses for the second show uh, because I want to be able to know who are my listeners are and also. If you sign up for the email newsletter, which would be part of it, uh, you'll get a once a month uh, email from me talking about blogs and publications and all the fun things you can do around psychology of food, sex, and drug. Anyhow, I know you guys are super excited to uh, hear about our guest today, which is Dr. Emily Nagoski. Uh, we had an episode early on last year, I think, that we talked about her finding uh, based on the book, her her book, Come As You Are, which is a kind of gold standard of the field right now. Today, specifically, we're going to focus on orgasms. I know a few weeks ago, Dr. Janet Brito talked about uh, what are some of the reasons that people are faking orgasms. We had Dr. Barback talking about uh, people struggling, uh, like what are some of the reasons that people are struggling with lack of orgasm. But I still received tons of emails from you guys wanting to learn more about how to reach orgasm, what to do if this is something you're struggling. So I'm very excited and honored to have Dr. Emily Nagoski on our show to answer all of these questions. We're talking about G-spots, different kinds of orgasms, how you can have extended orgasm. So stay tuned. Dr. Emily Nagoski is the award-winning author of New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, and the Come As You Are workbook and co-author with her sister, Amelia, of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. She began her work as sex educator at the University of Delaware, where volunteered as a peer sex educator while studying psychology with minor in cognitive science and philosophy. 
She went on to earn an MS in counseling and PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University with clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute. Now she combines sex education and stress education to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. Here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Nagoski. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Emily Nagoski back in our show. Dr. Emily, welcome to our show. I'm honored to be here. I am so excited to talk about orgasm today with you because I know that you, you're very knowledgeable. We talked about this topic in several episodes and the questions keep coming. Mm. <laughs> so it seems like many people want to know more about it. So one of the first questions that I hear a lot from my clients and colleagues is that, how do I know if I, I had had orgasm, what does orgasm feel like? Because it, it feels different for different people. It feels different for different people. And every orgasm feels a little different from every orgas- other orgasm that you've ever had. It entirely depends on the context. Some of them can feel like a connection with the divine, like your soul with your partner is merging into one. Sometimes they just feel, you know, good. And sometimes they're annoying or irritating. And sometimes they can feel terrible, like your body is betraying you because they're happening at a time when you don't want one. So how they feel really varies depending on the context. A lot of the time, not always, but often there's this rhythmic contraction of your pelvic floor muscle. You can't always feel the rhythmic contraction and it doesn't always happen, but it's one pretty typical marker that something has happened. If there were going to be any universal experience of orgasm, all orgasm is, is the sudden involuntary release of sexual tension. So it feels like, like something finishes or like, your body relaxes, at least in some of the muscles in your body, since sexual arousal is this very literal physical tension increase in your body. All of your muscles are involved. With the release of tension at orgasm, you're going to feel some parts of your body soften and relax. And I'm kind of curious, what what do you think makes it makes orgasm different? Because I can even talk about my experience that sometimes it's very... And sometimes it's more like, oh, okay, it was nice, but not as groundbreaking. So what are some of the things that contribute to the intensity and the sorts of orgasm that one person experience? It's all about the context. So when we look at the research, there are maybe half a dozen factors that seem really important in determining the intensity of pleasure we experience with sexual arousal. One of them, of course, is our own mental and physical well-being. If you are really healthy at a particular time, very happy, then that makes it easier for your brain to interpret any sensation as being pleasurable because the mechanism that governs sexual response is the dual control mechanism. It's partly about making sure the accelerator of the dual control mechanism gets all the stimulation it needs to send a whole lot of turn on signals. And it's about turning off all the things that are hitting the brakes, making sure the brake is freed up. There's none of the stress, anxiety, depression, pain, worry, trauma, history stuff, hitting the brakes, 
so when the brakes are freed up, the accelerator can do its job. So obviously having your own mental and physical well-being really maximized is going to make it easier to experience a higher intensity of pleasure. A second is relationship factors, which there's, I mean, I could talk for an hour just about relationships. <laughs> Orgasm is one of my favorite topics, but relationships are also up there with like favorite topics. But the most important factor there is trust. The relationship researcher and therapist Sue Gottman boils down relationship quality to this one question. Are you there for me? That's trust. If you're, if you feel like your partner is going to be there for you, no matter what, that's going to make it much easier for your body to relax into orgasm because you know it requires a lot. It's such an intimate thing to do. If your partner is there and when they see your body, their whole response is, yes, wow, thank you. Then that makes it easy for your brake to turn off. You don't need to worry about what your partner's perception is of your body or of your sexual response. You don't need to worry, oh, am I taking too long? Are they getting bored? When you fully trust your partner, None of the relationship stuff hits the brakes. It's just all accelerator. And that can really maximize sexual arousal. Part of it also is setting. People vary tremendously in what setting works for them. For some people, it has to be the same bed they've slept in every night for the last five years with the door locked, phones turned off, the kids are sleeping in another house somewhere um, so that they're not worried about interruption or about being heard. For some people, the best context is, you know, at in the bathroom at the house of a friend when they're invited to a party really quickly. Like that's a very intense sex positive context. It varies from person to person. I always recommend that people think about really great sexual experiences they've had in the past if they've had great sexual experiences and think through what the setting was. What was the context like? What was your relationship? relationship like at that moment? What was your relationship with your own body like in that moment? And it'll give you a sense of what context really facilitates this maximal sexual well-being. But then also there's just the actual process of arousal itself and the stuff you do to get there. We know that orgasms can be explosively pleasurable when you let them grow very gradually. If your arousal begins, say it's date night, for you and your partner and the arousal starts like they have you get home from work the date hasn't even started but they've already cleaned up the kitchen and left an enormous bouquet of flowers with a card telling you how beautiful you are and how much they love you and how much they're looking forward to looking into your eyes over dinner tonight that starts the arousal process so by the time you get through having dinner and watching the movie and cuddling together, you've spent hours gradually building up more stimulation to your sexual accelerator and given your break more time to just let go of all the stuff you could potentially be worrying about. And then you actually get to the part in bed or on the sofa or on the kitchen floor or wherever, and you let that go really slow. Get half an hour oral sex and you get lots of if you like whispering of compliments and dirty talk let it grow really slowly so that by the time you finally get to orgasm it's been two hours or three hours the way to get orgasms really big is to let them grow very gradually well, you talked about dual control mechanism in your book, and I, I love the examples that you provide in the book that you have, and also like the emphasis that you put on 
people's brake being on because I, what I discover in my clients and even with my friends is that it's not a lack of kind of accelerators, especially in Western society that people are kind of struggling, kind of contribute to people's struggle, with lack of kind of orgasm and desire. It's more about having too much brake. Yes. So, so I love that, that you're emphasizing both sides of it in your presentations and talks. And right now you were talking about that. And also, I like that how it's like you were talking about it's it's there are so many things that we can so within our control to change yeah. related to our orgasm. Because I have at times friends that they say, you know, so and so partner, so so and so lover was great, but I'm not with that person. Therefore, I cannot have that kind of sex. Yeah. So I think it's good that like kind of exploring as you were talking about that, okay, what was working for you then? Was it the element of adventure? Was it the kind of trust? What was going on there that hopefully you can recreate with other lovers? Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious to see uh, what do you think are some potential health benefits associated with having regular orgasms? Because some of my clients, you know, it's too much work. There's so many things going on in our lives. <laughs> Why put an effort to have sexual experiences and reach orgasm? What do you think about that? Orgasm is never obligatory. No one is required right. to have orgasms either on their own or with their partners. And sometimes they are. It's just a lot of work, especially if uh, you feel like your partner is using your orgasm as a measure of their self-worth. Like, I don't feel like I'm a good enough lover unless you have an orgasm. So you better have an orgasm or I'm going to feel bad about myself. That's exactly the dynamic that leads to people faking it, which is not so great. So one thing that orgasm does is build uh, if you're having orgasms with your partner, it can uh, facilitate a sense of bonding and connection with your partner. We know that that's one thing that high levels of intensity, arousal, and pleasure can have in a relationship. It also is a form of meditation. Oh, interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> Especially for people who find it comparatively difficult to orgasm. A lot of that difficulty comes from their distractibility from the fact that their thoughts will transition away from the pleasure happening into their bodies, the pleasure happening in their bodies, and they'll start worrying about chores that haven't been done yet or worrying about the kids or worrying about whether or not they should even be experiencing these sexual things. And mindfulness meditation is the practice of noticing that your thoughts have strayed and transferring them back onto the thing that you want to pay attention to. And with the practice of orgasm, it's about noticing that your thoughts have strayed onto the things that you're worried about or onto concerns about your body or anything else. Letting those thoughts go, you can have those thoughts any other time, but right now you're going to shift your attention right back to the pleasurable things happening in your body. And it trains your brain to stay with pleasure instead of being distracted away from it. And that can actually generalize itself into the rest of your life so that you notice when your mind is straying into the technical term, I'm sure you know, is rumination, mm -hmm. where you, you stay stuck in thinking about painful, difficult things. When you've got this habit of noticing what you're paying attention to, letting go of that and transitioning your attention to something pleasurable somewhere that feels good, something you'd rather be thinking about, 
we know for sure that that influences people's quality of life. Rumination is maybe the best predictor of depression, for example. So I don't know of a study that literally says if women practice daily sexual pleasure, which may or may not include orgasm, but sexual pleasure, that that can be a treatment for orgasm, but we do know that can be a treatment for depression. We do know that mindfulness is an evidence-based strategy and sexual pleasure up to and including orgasm is one of the ways to practice mindful awareness of your own internal experience. Absolutely. And I love that you're focusing and emphasizing on more on the process versus reaching orgasm, because I know that when like orgasm is one of those elusive things that if you really focus on getting orgasm, it's a really hard not to have an orgasm. (laughs) Right. So it makes it harder. And, you know, it's interesting that I love that you also talk about that it's not like a basic need that you have to have orgasm to survive. But I feel like many women, they have responsive model of desire and they sometimes don't give it enough shot to see if they like orgasm or sex or if the desire comes or not because of having all of these negative experiences related to sex and issues with orgasm and all of those things. Yeah, too often women just have sex because their partner expects it or because they otherwise feel obliged or like they're supposed to. And if we believe that sex is supposed to happen in a certain way, like we're supposed to just spontaneously out of the blue feel horny and that's not a thing for you, then it's really easy to sort of give up in frustration and just assume that sex is not a thing that happens for your body. And that is not at all true. A large proportion of women rarely or never experience that spontaneous out of the blue, just sort of like, oh, I would really like to have some sex kind of feeling. If you're a person who doesn't have that very often, that's okay. What you do is you set up a time with your partner, you put your body in the bed, you let your skin touch your partner's skin, and you do some things that you do find pleasurable, even if that's just holding each other for three minutes, just letting your skin touch your partner's skin, letting your body and mind wake up to the knowledge that, oh, right, I really like this person. And I really enjoy these sensations. You let the desire emerge in response to the pleasure. I have, I will say that I've, I was talking to some friends, we were sitting in a bar having drinks and they were like, so Emily, how do we sustain a strong sexual connection over multiple decades? They were parents of two very small children, and they're experiencing the difficulties that most couples experience when they have very small children. And I said this thing about like, you put your body in the bed and you let your skin touch your partner's skin. And one of the partners literally cringed away from the table, like, uh, at the idea of her skin touching her partner's skin. And I was like, okay, so that right there is your problem. It's not low desire. It's lack of pleasure, not just lack of pleasure. It's active dread. There's something that you're worried about happening when you touch your partner that is the thing that's getting in your way. So I have actually seen therapists and coaches do this really beautiful exercise where they have two partners stand up and create as much distance between their bodies as the lower interest person needs to feel really safe and comfortable being in the same room. Um, And sometimes they just take take like one or two steps back and there's a few feet of space. But I have seen the low desire partner take 20 feet, create 20 feet of space between them and their partner. And it is quite a moment for the higher desire partner to see 
how much space their partner needs in order to feel okay and safe. Like there's not going to be any pressure for them to do things that they're not into. And that is not a hopeless case. That's a case where people actually do find their way back to each other. What makes it difficult is that you can't just move closer together when that much space has been created because that space is crowded. It is full of all the weeks or months or sometimes years of misunderstandings and poor communication and judgment and blame. And if you really loved me, you would. And if you loved me, you wouldn't pressure me. And all the fear, like if you reject me, that means you don't love me. And I'm rejecting the sex, not you. I still love you. But the more you push me, the less comfortable and safe I feel. Like all these tangled knots that they've built between them. And they have to spend time sort of untangling all those knots and gradually making their way closer and closer back together. So I'm not saying this is necessarily a simple fix where you can just be like, bam, put your body in the bed. Sometimes it's more complicated than that, where you need to undo the damage that you've done over the time of one person chasing the other. That is so interesting. I, I never heard about this kind of an extra step of kind of doing this experiential kind of activity with couples, because sometimes like most of the time I, I incorporate sensate focus mm -hmm. in my practice. I love it. I think it's very helpful, but sometimes I hear lots of resistance from clients yeah. and couples. And that makes sense if they are at a place that they want to be 20 feet away from their partner, <laughs> maybe even yeah. the phrase one of sensate focus is too much. Yeah. That's exactly the context where I learned about this technique is when there are couples who don't even want to do phase one of sensate focus, the idea of like even just lying that close to each other, that partner has already shut down and does not want to participate. You have to take a step back like before that and figure out what, how much distance feels safe and what has to happen in order for that distance to close. And I always take it as a point of really powerful hope that no matter how much space they create between each other, they're still facing each other. Neither one has turned away. They want to be there in that connection. They just don't know how to find their way back to each other. And I think it's more kind of organic way of helping people to connect because if you're forcing something on, on couples when one of the partners are not ready, then it's create more resistance. So I'll think about you this week when I apply, <laughs> recommend this <laughs> technique to my couples. So I'm going to shift on a topic that I hear a lot. Whenever we talk about orgasm, people think about G-spots and you probably hear that it's very controversial. Some people think it exists. Some people say it's not anatomically present. So what do you think about G-spots? Oh, I have so many thoughts about G-spots. The short version is, I think some people definitely have one. Some people definitely don't. People vary tremendously because the vulva and vagina and clitoris vary tremendously from person to person. Our hardware is just laid out in very varied ways so that for some people, the urethral sponge, which is the organ that's the equivalent of the prostate in the female body, when the genitals get swollen with blood at arousal, the urethral sponge becomes very sensitive when you push against it through the top wall of the vagina. And for other people, it doesn't. For some people, this is one of my favorite hypotheses. So the urethral sponge or classic G-spot, that's one of the hypotheses and it's the original hypothesis for what the G-spot is and why orgasm happens with vaginal stimulation. 
A later hypothesis is that we now know that the clitoris internal structures extend far beyond just the head of the clitoris, but have these big spongy bodies that wrap either side of the urethra down to each side of the mouth of the vagina. So that when you experience vaginal penetration, you might actually be stimulating the internal structures of the clitoris through the vaginal wall. So some people might be orgasmic with vaginal stimulation because it's actually internal clitoral stimulation. Fascinating. And then, right? Mm -hmm. And I think some people experience one, some people experience the other, some people experience both, and some people experience neither. And all of those are normal. There's nothing right or wrong about the way your genital hardware is organized. People just vary from each other tremendously. And again, no one has an obligation to have an orgasm from vaginal stimulation. It's not a better orgasm than an orgasm that comes from direct clitoral stimulation. They're just different from each other. Like as far as the sensation? They can feel different. They Do they feel... Most people describe the sensation of an orgasm generated from vaginal stimulation as different from the sensation of an orgasm generated through clitoral stimulation. There might be some commonalities, but again, every orgasm is different from every other orgasm. The sensation of an orgasm from vaginal stimulation might vary depending on what you're being penetrated with. Is it a penis? Is it a toy? Is it a cucumber? Make sure you wash the cucumber really well. <laughs> we want to avoid infection. Or a jade egg, like the eggs from Goop have been getting all kinds of attention. Like an orgasm from that kind of penetration can feel different because the quality of the penetration is different. Again, there's often but not always a sensation of this rhythmic involuntary muscular contraction right at the mouth of the vagina. And you know, when people talk about different types of orgasms and they kind of like, they create this hierarchy, it's like this right. type is better than the other type. I think the focus sometimes then turn to kind of taking it to a performance, right? Absolutely. I want to perform this way. So that's why that I want this kind of orgasm. Sometimes I get consultation calls that people say, oh, can you teach me to have this kind of orgasm? I was like, you know, I can refer you to sex coaches. <laughs> but right. why, why, why do you want to experience something different? So I think it's important to kind of explore where is it coming from? Yeah. And when you get those calls, it's not people saying, you know, I'm having vaginal orgasms, but I really wish I could just have orgasms, direct clitoral stimulation all by itself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that it's mostly people saying I can have orgasms with my clitoris being stimulated, but I'm not having orgasms with vaginal stimulation during intercourse penetration with my partner. And I want to learn how to have those kinds of orgasms. So why? Why? Why vagina? Why does that matter so much to us? Answer, you know, patriarchy, <laughs> a, a man-centered idea of the way sexual pleasure is supposed to work. Um, intercourse tends to be pretty pleasurable for men who like to put their vagina, their penises in women's vaginas. And so it would be very convenient for them if their partner's preferred way of having an orgasm was also from having his penis in her vagina. That would be super convenient for him. And if that's not how her body happens to be wired, it would be easy in this sort of man-centered approach to sexual pleasure to say, well, there must be something wrong with her. Let's see if we can fix her orgasms. When in fact, there is nothing wrong with her orgasms. 
And what she needs is more clitoral stimulation. Absolutely. And amen to that. (laughs) And it's interesting that one of our other guests was telling us about the study that shows that lesbian women experience the orgasm gap is less, which I thought was very interesting. Yep. That makes perfect sense to me that, and I, I saw the research too, I was reading the paper and it, it seems like the reason why lesbians experience less of an orgasm gap is because they're, they know their bodies better and communicate more clearly. And there isn't this disparity of assuming here's how sexual arousal and pleasure and orgasm is supposed to work. And if it doesn't work that way, then there's something wrong. Lesbians have already had to go through a process of recognizing that what works for them sexually is not what the mainstream culture taught them was how their sexuality was supposed to work. And that all by itself builds in a flexibility of exploring and recognizing differences. And they have the same sort of starting place with their genitals. And so they can experience more empathy in creating a variety of sensations based on what the what their partner likes as opposed to what they wish their partner likes. Absolutely. And I think communication and also kind of mm. examining what works for you and kind of saying that to your partner can make a huge, huge difference. Huge. So, so I, I'm glad that you brought that up as well. And I'm kind of curious to learn about something else that like some people talk about that they're able to reach orgasm without genital stimulation. Yeah. Is that possible? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. It's possible. Um, And the way it works is so that thing in your brain, the dual control model, the accelerator, that is stimulation in your brain, right? And a whole lot of things can activate stimulation in your brain. Sometimes it's external stimulation, like a sensation on your skin or a taste or a smell. And sometimes it's an idea. We all know that watching porn or reading erotica or thinking about sex with your partner can generate arousal. And so, of course, it can escalate from just arousal higher and higher just by thinking, keeping your attention really focused on pleasure in your body and pleasurable thoughts can escalate all the way to orgasm. It takes focus and concentration and usually some practice, but it's definitely possible. People orgasm in their dreams, women orgasm in their dreams, just as boys do, for example, with nocturnal emissions. And that's all your body imagining it. It takes practice because it takes focus, not getting distracted and allowing your body to turn off all the brakes and not worry about it and just let pleasure live and grow in your body. And I hear about kind of like at night, nocturnal orgasm uh, that Mm -hmm. women experience, but how can one practice developing, cultivating the skill? Well, it really is just a matter of practice. And what I love about this practice is that like, what's the worst possible outcome? (laughs) You spend 20 minutes experiencing increasing levels of sexual arousal. If you don't get to orgasm, you still experienced all this time of sexual arousal and pleasure. That's a win, right? Mm, So it's, it's a hobby. It's a little bit like training for a marathon. It's not necessary for fitness, but it makes a really fun goal if you're interested in it. So Every couple of days, you set aside hmm, 15 minutes to half an hour to be by yourself and just 
pay attention to pleasurable sensations in your body, pay attention to the erotic kind of thoughts that come to your mind as you notice low levels of arousal and then increasing levels of arousal. You practice tightening whatever muscles feel like they want to tighten as your arousal level goes up. And on the first day, do not try to have an orgasm. Just see how intense your arousal can get in, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then and then go about your day. <laughs> and is it the matter of like, are we reading erotica or is it just like using our own imagination and tuning into our bodies? You can, it's, it's a sort of training wheels to use erotica or porn because that's a really high intensity of stimulation coming from the outside. And when stimulation is coming from the outside, it's harder to be distracted from it. When it's just coming from inside your own imagination, your thoughts, your feelings, your internal sensations, most of us find it easier to be distracted from that by some external stimulus. So it really takes practice to be able to have there be, you know, there's going to be noise. There'll be traffic outside your window. Maybe your phone will ring. Maybe there'll be, maybe you've got a to-do list of other things you could be using this time on and you're worried about not using this time for those things. So it takes practice to let all that stuff go, keep your attention focused on what's happening inside your body. And certainly I've done marathons and I love running, but certainly sounds like a fun, more fun way of (laughs) spending the 15 minutes. And you know what? There's less risk of injury. Absolutely. Yes. And and you're right. The worst case is like you get trained in mindfulness. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's And then, you know, sometime when you're dragging your kids around the grocery store and trying not to lose your shit, you'll be able to like remember to disengage your mind from your external circumstances and return your mind, not to erotic thoughts, but at least to a place of balance and centering inside your body. Sounds like a very interesting training. I'll definitely (laughs) implement that. There's a reason why Tantra yoga is a thing. Tantra yoga is about using the sensations in your body and having them rise to increasing levels of intensity. And it's a form of yogic meditation, just like the basic yoga practice, Ashtanga and Hatha yoga. Very interesting. I definitely, that's something I want to learn more about Tantra, because I know that that can kind of like help with kind of tuning in with your body, but also very interesting as far as the changes that can cause in your sexual desire and the sexual experiences. Before we uh, wrap our conversation today, I want to make sure that people like our listeners, they know about all this great content that you have. I know you have a blog, multiple wonderful books. So tell us, where can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, The book is the main thing. It's called Come As You Are. That's available right now. My next book is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle which is actually a stress book. It's interesting. Come As You Are came out in 2015 and I immediately started traveling all over, talking to lots and lots of women about the science of women's sexual well-being. And what they kept saying to me was, yes, Emily, all that sex science is great, but hey, you know what really helped me was that chapter on stress and emotion processing. Over and over, this kept happening. So I told my, I have an identical twin sister. So I was having a conversation about this with her and she was like, no kidding. Duh, because she's a choral conductor, which means she has to teach people how to feel their feelings all the time. And she was like, when I finally learned how to do this myself, it probably saved my life. Mm -hmm. She said twice. Oh, wow. She said 
And I was like, okay, so we should write a book about that. So the next book is actually not just sexual well-being, but overall well-being, because it turns out the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. That'll be out March 26th in the United States, March 11th in the UK. And then in June, something I'm so excited about, finally, in June, there's going to be a Come As You Are workbook, Oh, which is, I love the science, but Come As You Are workbook sort of removes all the science and makes it very specific, concrete. It's just a whole book of worksheets. How can I apply the science of women's sexual well-being in my life with my partner, given all the things that are really happening in my life? How do I make this practical? So I'm super excited about it. I wrote it specifically thinking of therapists using it with their clients or coaches using it with their clients, but couples also can use it with each other and individuals can use it on their own too. I'm really excited about that. It'll be out early June. How awesome. I mean, I'm excited for both of the books because the stress is, is the main cause that I see at least in my clientele yeah. that gets in the way of experiencing desire and it causes issues in their sexual uh, relationship, but also love the idea of workbook because when I was reading your book initially I was taking notes <laughs> mm-hmm. and I feel I love that now there is a space for people to kind of like explore and kind of do exercises because I this is one of the best books when it comes to female sexuality and I, I'm very excited to see what are some of the exercises and activities you included in the book. And there's new stuff because the science has grown since 2015. There's references and worksheets that are about the new emerging science, particularly of mindfulness. I will throw in a pitch here for Lori Brado's book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness. So if you're a person who gets distracted or you have a trauma history or if you're in recovery from a gynecological cancer or anything like that, mindfulness, Lori Brado's research on mindfulness as sex therapy is super powerful and just changes lives. Awesome. And guys, we interviewed Dr. Brotto on our show. So I leave a link to our interview there. She's amazing. Isn't she the best? Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing this wonderful knowledge and expertise with us. Please let us know when you release the book, guys, you can I'll announce that on the show so you guys can think about it and know when to get it. And Dr. Emily Nagoski, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Nagoski. It's always a treat to have her on the show. And I love that she emphasized using mindfulness and meditation as a way to improve our sexual awareness and sexual health. I'm certainly going to do the practice that she recommended for 15 hours per day. And I invite you to join me in this process as well. And I also I want to hear your thoughts about if you are doing this 15 minutes approach, if you're seeing any changes or improvement, you can tweet at me or you can share your thoughts on social media. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. And don't forget to check out our bonus episode on sex and depression. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.com sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.